0: Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. We have a great episode for you this week where I chatted with Knesset member Yossi Shane from the Israel Beitenu Party. Yossi was, in his former life, a professor of political science at Tel Aviv University and Georgetown University, where he was, full disclosure, my professor. I used this opportunity to talk to Yossi about his transition into the rough-and-tumble world of Israeli politics, the Ukraine War, Israel's refugee policy, and even Israel-Diaspora relations. Yossi has a new book out on this very topic called The Israeli Century, How the Zionist Revolution Changed History and Reinvented Judaism no more, no less. This was a fascinating conversation on many of the current and pressing issues of our day. Let's get into it. Hi, Professor Shane. Thank you for joining us.
1: It's a great pleasure, Neri. Good to have you.
0: Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, So I think we should start off with a full disclosure to our listeners. Uh, You and I have known each other for about 20 years. Ever since my time as a young undergraduate uh, at Georgetown University, and your time as a professor at Georgetown, somehow uh, I get older and you still look the same. So I don't know how. I don't know how that's fair. Oh, but
1: <laughs> you're too sweet. I uh, when you say it's twenty years, I'm just shocked by the fact that uh, you and me, the time disappears. So um, it's it's. Remarkable for me to, to, to remember you. I remember you as a, as a student, and here we are 20 years later.
0: 20 years later, and talking on a podcast which didn't exist. Yes. 20 years ago. That's amazing. So I wanted to start here. You'll uh, see you have a new job as a member of Knesset already for. I wouldn't
1: call it a job. It's, uh, you know, Max Weber wrote about politics as a vocation. Uh, for me, it's uh, it's a big transformation, as you know. Mm-hmm. After almost four decades in the academy, as the head of the School of Government and International Affairs at Tel Aviv University, and uh, as a full professor at Georgetown for two decades, um, I uh, just uh, the opportunity presented itself to join politics, and I said uh, it's. An opportunity I shouldn't skip this time, even though it was this opportunity was uh, pr- pr- was presented to me um, years ago. But this time I said, "Let's do it." So uh, here I am. Uh, it's not a job; it's uh, it's truly uh, a calling, a calling in many ways. Yes.
0: So I wanted to get into that a little bit. Uh, why Why did you choose to take the plunge this time, and why did you choose to go with the Israel Beiteinu party, which, uh, as we all know, is uh, the party of finance minister Avigdor Lieberman?
1: It's quite simple, because I, I, I've i known Mr. Lieberman from the time he was the foreign minister. When he was the foreign minister, he called on me. I was, uh, at the time, the head of the School of International Affairs and Politics at Aviv University. And just wanted to discuss international affairs, and uh, we became, uh, you know, acquainted, and uh, we, we we conducted talks uh, when he was foreign minister, and uh, eventually, years later, um, he uh, asked me to come and join him when he was already in the opposition um, again as an advisor, but very, you know, lightly. And then he asked me to head the team that advised him on how to behave during COVID time. And uh, we became kind of closer. And uh, then, as you know, Israel went into a series of uh, election uh, cycles. And uh, I, uh, at one point, he said, would you be willing to run? And I said, okay, it's time to do it. I, I was about to complete my uh, uh, term as head of the school after years, and I thought it was a good opportunity to do it. And luckily I was elected, and uh, the uh, government changed as I wanted, because I thought it was a critical moment in Israel's history. I thought that replacing the government uh, of Netanyahu, uh, the, the sequences of governments and by Netanyahu, which I felt uh, were doing harm to the, uh, to the country at the time, I decided to uh, jump into it, and um, um, I'm delighted that we uh, were able to form a government. And Mr. Lieberman, we promised in the election three different things. One is we said that we will not join Netanyahu's coalition. The second was that we will not be members of a coalition with uh, Litzman, Derry, and Guffney.
0: The ultra-Orthodox.
1: And the third was that Mr. Lieberman uh, pledged to be the finance minister. And lo and behold, we made uh, the three pledges. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real opportunity.
0: Absolutely. And Lieberman, we should remind our listeners, uh, played an integral part in, uh, in the end of Netanyahu's uh, prime ministership. Yes. Uh, starting from the first election cycle in the spring of 2019.
1: Absolutely. That was when Mr. Lieberman decided not to join the coalition that Netanyahu built, albeit he was offered everything you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he really, really was committed to change the government because he also thought that Netanyahu has exhausted uh, the uh, prime ministership and now under duress with all kind of um, charges uh, against him on corruption. He thought that he cannot function like that, and he uh, decided not to join him.
0: Right. So in terms of your uh, your new vocation and transformation it's been like i said a few months now since the new knesset uh was seated how how have you found the transition going so far uh israeli politics uh has a reputation i think richly deserved for being a a contact sport and not the most uh sympathetic environment a lot of uh backstabbing and backroom deals so how have you personally found it
1: I will tell you that when I when I came into politics, the my own kind of like commitment was that it's not about me. I will join the game, but I'm not going to put myself at the center. But rather, we'll see how I can really help matters on issues that I felt was comfortable with. And so I uh, maybe some people criticize me for not being too much in the news and so on, but i really trying to do work, and I work day in day out around the clock on issues that I feel that I can contribute and that is I was fortunate enough to be on the uh, Security and Foreign Relations Committee including the Subcommittee on Intelligence which is the most important committee in the Knesset. I was also put on the Education Committee and I'm the head of the Subcommittee for Higher Education. I uh, established the caucus for um, what I called Marketing Israeli Culture Among Nations which I'm dedicating myself to, to build something like the British Council, you know, the Geta Institute, the Israeli style, because I think Israel's culture now reverberates around the world and it's time really to build an institution around it. And I'm working very hard to build it. I work um, with the our ministers on issues pertaining to the Galilee and the Negev and embellishing sort of our higher education there. So I, I contribute wherever I can. I'm also the head of the... Knesset delegation to the European Parliament and with our relations with India and our relations with uh, Cyprus uh, and Greece and the trilateral sort of negotiations. Lots of things that suddenly came my way, in addition to, of course, uh, legislating and uh, uh, spending many, many nights at the chamber speaking and so on so All my life changed dramatically, uh, and I became a full-fledged member of Knesset. In fact, today is already nine months since I began my tenure as a Knesset member. And uh, just as the 20 years since I met you fly very quickly, (laughs) I uh, cannot imagine almost a year in the parliament or in the Knesset working so hard. You're absolutely correct about the Knesset and its culture. Uh, Lots of things have been deteriorated also because of the enmity between the opposition and the coalition, Uh, the style, the language, all of which are really, really really troubling to me. But I'm trying also to draw the lines every morning for myself, Um, what I call the lines that I will not be humiliated, I will not be kind of like engaged in any discussion and yelling, that I don't want to be, it's tough, but I'm trying to remain Kind of um, uh, keeping keeping a certain semblance of, of discipline for myself. Um, uh, it's not it's not a recipe for making a name for yourself nationally because in Israel you make a name if there is a scandal or if there is something uh, dramatic uh, pronouncement. Um, I've not been there yet, and uh, yeah, it's okay with me. Right
0: uh, to get into the n- news cycle here, you have to uh, you have to say something outrageous or get embroiled in some kind of controversy, usually?
1: I guess I'm too boring for that. And as I said to my advisors who constantly ask me to twit, to do this, six, to, to make something, I said, you know, it's against my nature and against my, you know, what I, what I want to accomplish. And um, obviously I, am, uh, I came under the uh, invitation of Mr. Lieberman and I understand very fully that my election to the Knesset was not that I was running and uh, in primaries and so on, but rather Mr. Lieberman put me on his list. So I'm not becoming confused about my role. I know that he is the leader of my party. And uh, someone asked me, how can you be so disciplined when you enjoy so much uh, freedom in the academy? I say maybe after uh, four decades of total freedom, (laughs) I now enjoy a little bit of enslavement.
0: (laughs) Right. yeah, And maybe taking a step back and putting back on your political scientist hat, uh, explain to listeners and people on the outside how you would assess the, the new government and the new governing coalition uh, so far, like you said, nine months in power.
1: First of all, uh, uh, our audience must know that this government is really unique in Israel's history. It's the first time that we have a government that has in its spectrum from left to right parties that have never been sitting together in the same government. And that is something which no one could have imagined only a year ago, that something that can be be reformed. That people from the right wing, and an Arab party of uh, Islamic uh, kind of like a creed, would sit together with uh, Zionists and non-Zionists and everybody will sit together and will work in relative harmony, I would say, notwithstanding debates, because they understand that the opposition or the alternative is really something which they all believe is harming Israel. And so this is really a unique coalition. Um, We have, uh, as you know, um, no one in the coalition has any monopoly over power in a complete fashion. There is no really dominating party. Each party more or less has the same power, uh, which also means that all the ministers in the government, from all the parties, the eight uh, uh, members or eight uh, parts of this coalition, every part has tremendous power on its own or on her own, but rather not uh, reaching a monopoly. And one way or another, they're working together, which is again, something quite unique how long it will last? It's it's sometimes difficult to note because sometimes you see that uh, clashes within the coalition on issues of ideology, on preferences, and so on are emerging. Uh, but so far, uh, each minister has his own power. The prime minister, who is a powerful personality in all all governments, is powerful, but he's not dominating all these parties because he himself is at the head of a very small party. And also he has what they call alternative prime minister, or Hilufi in Hebrew, which means that he will be replaced in two years in the cycle of elections. So all of this creates a different balance of power in Israeli politics. I think it's surprising a lot of people that this government lasts for to- uh, in, in, in such a cohesive fashion, uh, despite the fact that there is no really powerful gravity at the top, prime minister that that rather than every minister is a power of his own or her own. Uh, And that kind of like the fact that this plurality of powers is working to create a semblance of a governing coalition is quite surprising. Uh, Every time there is a crisis or or, uh, disagreements, people uh, speak about the fact that this government will not last. But so far it lasted. And as I mentioned before, it lasted also because there is no real opposition alternative to this government, or another, what I call an an alternative coalition, because it consists the opposition of extreme right, ultra-orthodox Likud, and the extreme left of the uh, uh, Arab party that is uh, anti-Zionist by nature, of course, and and the most um, ardent opponent. Of uh, the Likud, so this is uh, this is what makes this government viable, and this is what makes it uh, stable uh, against all odds.
0: Right, and we should also mention that Bibi Netanyahu is still opposition leader, and there's a lot of
1: uh... absolutely. Okay. I, I said it before, before we were disconnected, but the fact that Netanyahu is still the opposition leader also gives some assurances that this coalition will last because many. Parts of these coalitions were part of Netanyahu's coalition before, but they vow never to sit again with Netanyahu. So the fact that Netanyahu created so many enemies to himself, uh, like Mr. Bennett himself, like um, Gidon Sar, the Minister of Justice.
0: Mr. Lieberman.
1: Mr. Lieberman uh, and others, and or Mr. Gantz, who was with him in the coalition and vowed not to be with him again. Uh, this kind of like gives added assurance that this coalition will last because they don't want to be with Netanyahu. Right.
0: So that's a good jumping off point to current affairs and current policies of this Israeli government. And we have to obviously start with the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, We're recording this podcast on Thursday, March 17th. Uh, So in case anything changes between now and when this episode goes up, uh, that's the reason why we didn't touch on it. But really, Israel's policy vis-a-vis the war has been described as a, a delicate balancing act, uh, dancing through the raindrops. Um, what do you make of it so far as somebody who, who is part of the governing coalition? There has been some criticism in certain quarters that uh, Israel should be a lot more uh, forthcoming in, in publicly supporting Ukraine and, and publicly uh, asserting its position as, as part of the West and as a U.S. ally. Uh, and this is balanced, obviously, with um, you know the Israeli government's need to to safeguard uh, the country's strategic interests as it sees it vis-a-vis Russia. So, how would you assess uh, Israeli policy vis-a-vis the ongoing war so far?
1: I think your listeners must understand that, of course, Israel is not part of the war, but because of its position. Um, which is, um, uh, Israel is, a, is, is, is its number one allies, of course, the United States, but we also have relations with Russia and Ukraine, and uh, we have um, huge interest in what is happening there also because of Israelis and Jewish populations that we want to uh, assist, and also because we um, are concerned about our own borders and the Russian involvement in the Middle East, so we have to walk very uh, fine balance in terms of our behavior. And there are three issues that we are dealing with. One is humanitarian concerns, and we have huge humanitarian concern. What's happening? In, in Ukraine, and we are committed to help, and we have sent, uh, we are building a, a hospital there, we have sent many people to assist the refugees, we, uh, we take many asylum seekers in Israel, uh, tens of thousands of asylum seekers will take, many of whom are Jewish, but not only, uh, half of them are by now not Jewish, so we, we, we're going to help there. And we have also, of course, strategic alliances, we have to see. So as much as we have sympathy, as Mr. Lapid, our foreign minister, articulated for the Ukrainians, and he condemned the Russian invasion, we also are, our prime minister is is playing kind of like the role of uh, a mediator of sorts. He's in fact the only mediator between Putin and Zelensky. So that forces him to be a little bit more careful if you want to remain a viable mediator and a respectable mediator, because he also understands the, the interests of Israel. We are a country that has a border with Syria, where Russia has a very important role to play. So we are, we are really indeed, as you suggested, walking a very fine line. And when you walk a fine line, and when you're trying to navigate between interests and, and morality and, uh, and, and, and uh, alliances and so on, uh, no one is happy because people like to have kind of like a uh, us versus them mentality but we see that no country in fact is taking this and israel is not an empire that can lead the world we see how americans have of course took a position against the russian invasion but also we uh, are not committed to uh, join the war and are not committed to put soldiers or, or, or on the ground and are even uh, we're reluctant to send ammunition and so on, and we see what happened with Germany, with France, with others. And so Israel is watching what is happening, uh, is not jumping to be leaders in this, because we're not an empire. We are not, uh, but we are very much concerned about Ukraine. On Sunday morning, we're talking on Thursday, on Saturday afternoon, excuse me, we will have Zelensky speaking to members of uh, uh, Knesset and ministers. We're waiting for his message. We're incredibly concerned about what happened. To the refugees, to the asylum seekers, uh, and we are we are we are eager that this uh, uh, terrible terrible ordeal will end, and we hope that it will not take uh, m- much more human toll as it already has been. And we also learn from this war how important it is for Israel to remain strong, to remain sovereign, to depend only on itself, which we do because this is a dangerous world, and we understand very fully well what it means for a country not to be able to defend itself against aggression or against such uh, a nasty war. So we are uh, looking very carefully, acting very carefully, but not uh, gingerly, as you suggested. Rather, we are uh, seeing what can be done. And our prime commitment, as I said, is humanitarian for uh, refugees and asylum seekers, many of whom are Jewish and Israelis who remain there. And thirdly, to play a role, if possible, as mediators to bring this into an end uh, and to bring the world into a better place because we see how this is uh, also affecting us vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis our region. We are very, very cautiously moving, but very, very worried about the repercussions of this deterioration. Right,
0: fallout uh, in the Middle East and globally. I think it's it's fair yes, to say absolutely. we're already seeing it. Um, so you touched on on this figure of Zelensky, and like you said, he's supposed to uh, give an address to uh, to the Knesset members uh, on Sunday. So maybe by the time this podcast goes up, that uh, that has already happened. But in terms of uh, diaspora politics, Jewish diaspora politics, which you're an expert on, foremost expert on, um, how would you how would you put the figure of Zelensky uh, in context? Right, he's obviously the president. Of Ukraine, uh, but also a Ukrainian Jew. So, in terms of how Israel or Israelis view view this figure, do you think do you think that matters to a great degree?
1: I don't think this is the the big issue. I mean, it's clear that Zelensky is a Ukrainian patriot, is a president of Ukraine. The fact that he has Jewish roots is um, is not, I wouldn't say inconsequential, but this is not what dictates our behavior. He's the president of Ukraine um uh, we have we have good relations with zelensky we have good relations with the Ukrainians, but as it as it is, we also have relations with russia good relations with Russia so zelensky himself and uh, uh, uh was suggesting that Israel will be mediating uh, between him and russia because there are no there is no other other one to do this job Americans cannot do it the Germans cannot do it Macron was trying to do it so Bennett. Uh, uh, you know, is is a very good partner in in really advancing uh, uh, some degree of agreement there, because this can deteriorate more and more and become such a, a disaster as as it is already a human disaster, a human toll. Mm-hmm. The occupation of, uh, of of Ukraine and 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 the destruction of the state is terrible. We 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 don't want to see that. We want things to go back to a certain degree of a semblance of normality. So, Bennett is. Walking, it doesn't speak too much. Yair Lapid is is, is, is deputy, and is uh, will replace him in two years. And, and the man who is foreign minister is doing much more talking about condemning the Russians and, and for for their aggression and for the war. Uh, so they are working kind of like in this coalition uh, between the 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 fear for the morality and the fear for the for the human toll and the uh, and the need to uh, compromise some, I would say, uh, principles for the sake of realpolitik. It's very, very tough. Right.
0: Lapida in his public statements, embodies, I guess, the values aspect of Israeli policy, and Bennett is the practitioner of realpolitik.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, if if Bennett is going to be successful in bringing the two sides to a certain agreement and will end the war, of course, we will be delighted. Uh, that he will do so. Many people were charging that this is a risky position because you know uh, people can can sometimes blame the messenger, so to speak. So, uh, but but at the same time, Israel cannot shy away from such international responsibility. And as I said before, we have lots of concerns for uh, uh, Israelis and Jewish population and asylum seekers. And this is how we we basically uh, look into it and trying to help. We are, have to accommodate tens of thousands of new people coming to Israel. Uh, this is a huge endeavor in itself. I've been involved with this. Uh, all of us are being involved with this. Our party, because we are a party that built on uh, former uh, Soviet constituencies and, and who moved to Israel in the big migration of 1990s. This is who we are. So we are all committed to this. And uh, uh, this is our primary concern about the human toll.
0: So on that point, we've seen, like you said, I think the figures now, maybe 10,000 Ukrainians have arrived here uh, after the outbreak of hostilities three weeks ago. And there has been a debate inside Israel about how many non-Jewish Ukrainians to allow in. And you see figures like Interior Minister Eyal Ked say, look, uh, Israel, its reason for being is as the, the homeland, the nation state of the Jewish people and that the Ukrainian Jews by dint of the law of return have preference over non-Jewish refugees which by the way Israel is also uh taking in um so i wanted to ask you as as an expert on like i said diaspora politics explain the importance to our listeners of the law of return because i get asked this question all the time why why does israel discriminate in favor positively discriminate in favor of Jews from all over the world?
1: I think the word discriminate is not a good word. What we have, we have a preference. It's not a discrimination. Israel was built, remember, um, uh, in 19, it was created in 1948, just three years after the Holocaust. And Israel made its creed to become the uh, place of refuge for all the Jews, wherever they may be, and therefore enacted the law of return. That any Jew who is in danger or seeking shelter will find a shelter in Israel. And the Jew was defined, broadly speaking, someone who had the grandfather's Jewish. And that kind of like what the parameters of creating the law of return, that Israel is a country of the Jews. It was defined like that by the United Nations in 1947, the partition plan in 1947. The United Nations defined Israel as a Jewish state, and it considers itself a Jewish state, a state for the Jews. So every Jew, whoever, uh, uh, wherever he or she may be, may know that they have a home to come to. So this is our preference, and it always has been. And indeed, if you look at that, it's quite remarkable. When the State of Israel was created in 1948, the number of Jews in Israel was 600,000. The remaining Jews in the world after the Holocaust, after the uh, perishing of 6 million people, Jews in the Holocaust, were at the time, there were 11 and a half million Uh, most of whom were at the time, or the the big chunk was in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now Israel is fast becoming the majority of the Jews around the globe. We are over 7 million Jews now, and we are constantly absorbing Jews from wherever they are and under duress. So this is our mission, and this is indeed the fulfillment of the Zionist idea of of, of having a a Jewish state. And yet, we also have to be incredibly uh, sensitive to the notion that we are not, as you said, discriminating against non-Jews. In fact, we are taking many non-Jews to Israel as asylum seekers. We are committed to asylum seekers, and but we also understand our kind of like what people, the Americans, used to call absorptive capacities—how much we will take. We are far away from the conflict, and we we have issues to take care of. But we are not in any way shying away from this. And if there were some uh, uh, mishandling uh, in the last in the first few days or two, three days. These have, come, have gone, and I've been in, in, in Ben-Gurion Airport. We're taking every single person who comes to Israel and go on an airplane comes to Israel, landing in Israel as asylum seeker. We're taking them for temporary refuge for uh, because they have letters from their families, uh, because they have acquaintances here. We are not going to close our doors. Our policy is open doors for those who are already landing in Tel Aviv or in Ben-Gurion.
0: Right. Um and we should say that uh, aside from the proper olim, the proper Jewish immigrants who, who come here by dint of law return from, from Ukraine, uh, like you said, seeking uh, asylum and, and shelter from the storm, uh, there are non-Jews that arrive here. And I think the new policy is uh, anyone who has uh, a relative or an acquaintance here in Israel already um, can come here, that it's not, it's not uh, subject to, to a quota they can come here and, and be uh, be housed here. Um, I'm curious, in terms of the law of return, is there anything comparable in other countries in the world?
1: In many countries, in fact, we have that. Uh, people just forget, you know, we are an ethno-national country. Um, and many countries uh, in Europe, in, uh, in Asia, and ev- everywhere have this kind of like a p- uh, position. About taking uh, or making preferences for their own nationals as part of the uh, as part of the political body, but make no mistake about it: in Israel, and as we spoke about the coalition before, we have 21 to 22 percent Arab citizens, and 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 now we have a party in the government uh, of uh, uh, that is an Arab party for the first time, headed by Mansour Abbas, who is becoming a national leader in Israel. So we, we have a, a major uh, a chunk of, of Arabs in Israel, citizens. I'm not talking about those who were uh, in the West Bank or, or in, in, the, in, in the Judean Sumer, as we call it. Or uh, 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 No, we are talking about Arab citizens or members of the Knesset, who are now uh, uh, 40% of the students in, in, in Haifa University or about 20% in Tel Aviv University. These are our Arab citizens. So, uh, and yet at the same time, we want to keep this as a Jewish state by its tradition, by its legacy, by its origin, by its its, 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 its uh, uh, language, Hebrew language, and so on and so forth. So uh, this is what it is, and uh, that's why we have to navigate between our commitment to the national law of Israel, which is that pre- prescribed that this is a Jewish state, and by our commitment to democracy and liberal values and to minorities, etc., and we have to navigate the ship. If we will storm the country, let's say we'll put everybody will be non-Jewish, so the country will lose its character. And many countries are like that in many places, and uh, we are not unique in that respect. Uh, but the uh, uh, we are we are of course uh, uh, oftentimes looks. Uh, looked at uh, like that, but they think about Japan, think about Poland, think about many, many countries, Germany even, um, you know, or, or Hungary, or we, many countries who consider themselves an ethno national countries.
0: Right. Um, so that's also a very useful transition to uh, our next topic, which is your new book that recently came out. Uh, it's called The Israeli Century How the Zionist Revolution Changed History and Reinvented Judaism. Uh, now, I've, I haven't i have had a chance to read the whole book, but from what I've gleaned so far, it has a, a very intriguing and for some maybe a bit of a controversial thesis, uh, maybe especially for those uh, in the diaspora, that, and I quote, the Jewish center of gravity, cultural, religious, political, demographic, and even economic has decamped from New York and is now to be found in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv for the foreseeable future. Yes. Uh, in other words, Israeli sovereignty is the key to the preservation of Judaism and of Jews. Yes. Is, is that a fair sum up of, of the book's main thesis? Absolutely.
1: This is it. Uh, look, we are in a very unique position and in a in place juncture in Jewish history. The book covers Jewish history from the first temple to now, and especially with uh, emphasis on modernity and the state of Israel showing how, for the first time in history, perhaps, Jewish sovereignty informs almost everything which is Jewish and will do so in the foreseeable future, in terms of culture, in terms of identity, in terms of religious practices, in terms of of alliances in world affairs, in terms of our internal culture, in terms of literature, Jewish literature, whatever it is, it's being produced in Israel. And in terms of what I call Jewish morality, and you already alluded to it, we cannot in a sovereign state, remain what we call with Jewish morality of the liberal Jewish morality of the diaspora, which never had any consequences for power. We have power, and that changes the Jewish existence. Our primary concern is about securing our land, securing our state, and this is now the key factor in Jewish life, not only for the Israelis, but for diaspora Jews who want to remain Jewish wherever they may be. There is no other alternative to the idea of Israel speaking on behalf of the Jews. No one, no single organization, not even few organizations, who claim to speak on behalf of the Jews with, with authority rather than the state of Israel. This is a unique moment in Jewish history and everything stems from what is happening in Israel and will continue to do so, not only because, as I mentioned already, the majority of the Jews will soon reside in Israel, but also because of the evolution of the Israelis, the success of the Israelis, the fact that we have become such an important country in international affairs, we have become, think about it, the more we became rooted in our land, we became even globalized in a different fashion. The Jew of the global Jew of, of the diaspora, which many people celebrated as has uh, been as, as, as dissipated as a Jew, but rather the Israelis, the startup nation, the high-tech society, we are in an incredible position. This is not just to mention a triumphant success of sovereignty vis-a-vis the diaspora, but it's a very interesting evolution which has gone through the centuries. And I, what I do in the book, I show how each time, and the small, I would say the, 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 uh, the, uh, the few years that Jews had sovereignty in the first temple, second temple era was the Maccabees. And now, every time the Jews had sovereignty, sovereignty took center stage of Jewish existence. And, of course, as I mentioned also, in the old days, there was kind of a cycle that Jews have adopted. That they, Once they have sovereignty, they will, God will punish them and they go to exile and then exile and return. I said that this is kind of like we ended the cycle. The creation of the State of Israel means that there is no more exile as an option for the Jews because the uh, the, the abolishment of the State of Israel means calamity for the world. It cannot, and, and that's why we are keeping our strength, keeping our uh, 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 borders, keeping our uh, uh, I would say uh, dedication to statehood, to sovereignty, which is a key factor in Jewish life today.
0: So a lot to unpack there. Uh, I wanted to ask you know, so getting back to, to the Israeli century and the success of the Zionist movement which some have said uh, is arguably the most successful revolutionary movement of the 20th century. Um, so just as as prologue How do you explain the success of the Zionist movement?
1: I think the success of the Zionist century came to begin with with the ability to form a sovereign state in the War of Independence. This was, as you very well know, and I talk a lot about it in the book, was not a foregone conclusion, including the United States and others were leery about it. They did not believe that Israel would be able to uh, survive the onslaught of seven Arab armies, which we did, and that kind of created a creed that the Jew is uh, uh, is, is no longer surrender to overwhelming power, but rather becoming a new character of the Jewish, uh, uh, the Jewish uh, person, which was weak, weak, and, and 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 powerless in the diaspora, and now become strong and committed to sovereignty and to uh, uh, exercise his uh, sovereign rights and fight for it. The fact that we have managed to create such a strong army that withstood huge challenges in the 50s and, of course, during the Six-Day War in which we kind of like uh, overwhelmed all the Arab armies and later on is a key factor in the Jewish success in our time. And that kind of reverberated around the Jewish world and around the world that the Jews have become Powerful, rather than powerless. This is a legacy that we have uh, uh, have, have taken from our uh, complete uh, destruction during the Holocaust, when we were powerless. No one came to defend us, and the Jews were perishing in concentration camps and 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 went to the slaughter, as they call it. Uh, not mm-hmm. anymore. So this legacy of never again is 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 the is the the creed, is the imperative of the Zionist imperative of Israel, and no more exile. Uh, Second is the innovative spirit and the patriotic spirit which was was created here. Israelis have grown from uh, a small country uh, based on socialism, based on agriculture, to a very advanced uh, country of capitalism and innovation and creation and creativity. And the Israelis are both patriotic and global at the same time, Albeit we have lots of problems here. We have, as I mentioned, the biggest challenge we have, in my opinion, is the ultra-Orthodox who want to pay pay more attention to the study of the Torah than than the protection of the state and do not join it. And we have lots of other challenges here. But overall, this idea of having a homeland made the Israelis much more, I would say, secure in the global terms. They travel abroad but they constantly hearken back to the state, incredibly patriotic, coming back and forth. And even the transnational Israelis do not leave the country. In the, in the early days of the state, many people thought it will not last. And many people asked the question, who will be the last to turn the light on Israel during the, uh, the days leading to the Six-Day War? But I don't think this question is being asked anymore, even though we still have lots of challenges, lots of enemies around. But we also have, in the last few years, Incredible amount of new alliances in the Middle East. We signed agreements with the major Arab states, with Jordan, with Egypt, with the Gulf states. Uh, we have enlarged our cycle of friends. Even with Saudi Arabia, we're in good terms now. This is quite remarkable how Israel has become a, 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 a fixture of the Middle East, a player and, and also a friend of Arabs. Not only they are our nemesis, even though they're still a destructive. Uh, forces here that are not accepting us, from Hezbollah, uh, Shiites in in Lebanon, to Hamas in Gaza, to of course to our number one nemesis, the Iranians, were trying to subvert anything which we do and to destroy us, as uh, they claim. So we have a, uh, we have we have our struggle never ended, and we are constantly on alert.
0: So we'll get into the challenges in just one second, but I can already hear. Uh, the wheels in the mind of our listeners turning and saying, wait a minute, Uh, Israel's success militarily, economically, culturally is one thing, but what does that have to do with our future as Jews in the diaspora, in America, in Britain? Why does it necessarily follow that Israel's success is key to the preservation of our Judaism? How would you answer uh, those those critiques, which I can already hear from across the, uh, the airwaves.
1: There are two questions here to be asked. One is, indeed, as you said, what is the nexus between Israelis and the diaspora? Second, what happened in the diaspora on its own? What happened? If we separate the diaspora from Israel completely, you look what happened. Can the diaspora sustain itself in terms of its identity, Jewish identity, in terms of its security, and in terms of its culture, uh, without any component of nationalism. In the liberal states that you mentioned, we have seen a deterioration of affinity, of kinship affinity, because once you are a liberal a Jew in America who successful, you intermarry, you do no longer keep uh, Jewish neighborhoods intact because um, this is not what it's all about. You go to school, You you are you are you're forgetting who you are. The kinship ties have deteriorated. And therefore, Israeli nationalism and Israeli identity is becoming an important component of enhancing and keeping your identity while abroad. And we have seen it with Birthright Israel. We have seen it for a long time that Zionism has built Jewish organization. There is no really strong Jewish organization today that has not a Zionist creed. If you look into the past, American Reform movement, which was the largest movement. of of anti-nationalist, anti-halachic, sort of like, was uh, cannot exist without having a creed of Zionism, which they adopted in 1999. All other organizations have to come to terms with Israel if they want to be involved in Jewish life. If you look at rabbis in Britain, you talk to me about Britain, Britain Mm -hmm. rabbis, you know, like I I speak, I I spent time in England and I did a lot of work on British Jewry, all the British rabbis were ordained in Jerusalem. There is only two hundred and eighty thousand British Jews now left, and we saw what happened with anti-Semitism in England under the Labour Party. We see what happened in France when Jews are being attacked because of anti-Semitism of radical Islamism, and uh, and, and 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 Mediterranean Jews or Middle Eastern Jews are very much connected to Israel. Israel is the key component of their identity. There is nothing else or nothing stronger than this. There are, of course, ultra-Orthodox Jews who are completely committed just to religiosity, to the, to the very strict practice of halakhic life. But again, they cannot provide an alternative of identity to the most Jews in the Western civilization. And therefore, Israel is the key component. And now we see in Ukraine, and of course, we saw in Russia when the Russia, when, when Soviet Union crumbled, that Israel is still the safe haven for Jews wherever they may be in times of duress. And we saw it with Britain, we saw it with France uh, in the last decade, we see it now with Ukraine and with Russians. There is no other country that will receive them, help them, will be their home. So even though Jews may not see Israel a home away from home, in the back of their mind, they know there is a place they can go to and become members of the kin community if they wish to keep their kinship ties intact unless they want to assimilate altogether, they don't care about it, which is also a possibility. Uh, so this is where it is. It's very tough to maintain liberal Jewish organization financially, organizationally, uh, uh, in, 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 in the countries you have mentioned.
0: Okay. Um, so looking ahead, you write about the five tribes of the 21st century Judaism. Uh, this harkens back to former President Ruben Rivlin's uh, famous Four Tribes, Speech about the different uh, segments of Israeli society, whether mainstream Zionist, uh, religious nationalist, uh, ultra-orthodox, and the Arab Israeli tribe. Uh, so you added a fifth, which is the diaspora. And looking ahead, you you write that you know in order to achieve a sense of community and coherence, rather than chaos, uh, all these five tribes have to come together and build a future together. So. In terms of the Tachlis operative plan, what would that look like moving forward?
1: Look, the, the tribes I was talking to is, first of all, related to the divisions that we have in Israel and are, are challenging the Israeli century. And But uh, one is, of course, the ultra-Orthodox. We see the growth of the ultra-Orthodox families with 6.8 kids per family per woman. And this is the number one challenge, in my opinion, of the Israeli state. Because in their creed, they are anti-statehood, anti-secularism, anti-modernity. And we have to come to terms with this and how we're going to work this out is a huge challenge which I work on in the Knesset. And this is a big tribe that is growing. It's now comprising of about 16% of the Jewish population in Israel. And this is a huge challenge, how we incorporate ultra-Orthodox into modernity. The second tribe, which is, of course, uh, as you talked about, the Arab Israelis, many of whom are undergoing what I call processes of Israelization. And even the Haredias are going, Israelization means that they accept the state of Israel. They're citizens of Israel. Even if they're hostile sometimes to Israel, they're still speaking the language, are are part of the state. And and, and the big question is whether they will develop, uh, 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 I would say, Uh, a position which is uh, anti-state or rival to the state to the degree that they want to create their own autonomous life and separating from the state. We have to fight that. And we have been fighting it quite, uh, 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 I would say, effectively. The third tribe has been uh, the uh, tribe of the religious Zionist tribe in many ways. Those who are, uh, are, are trying to separate from the diaspora are trying to be kind of like Ardent nationalists, not accepting foreigners, not accepting universalism, and this is, I think, is very, very dangerous uh, to us. I think these voices are, uh, uh, are, are dangerous to the well-being of a modern state of Israel. Uh, they are uh, too particularistic. They don't understand universal creeds, and we are also seeing them in the Knesset gaining momentum. But we uh, uh, we also see how religious Zionists have split. And our prime minister today is a religious Zionist with an, a universal orientation, which is nice to see. How these forces also have among themselves uh, difficult uh, differences, and that is a very important one. Mm-hmm. The diaspora component, which I describe as the fifth tribe, is the uh, is, is the tribe that basically look at into the in Israel and see how to coexist with it, and that of course relates also to countries of domicile. There is a difference between. The largest diaspora, the American diaspora, which is the critical diaspora, is the most important diaspora, still comprised of 5.4, 5.5, doesn't matter the numbers, million of Jews separated among themselves. But they have a voice. They need to have a voice. We want them to have a voice. Uh, All other diasporas are shrinking and are shrinking fast. And we see that the numbers are, are, are telling and also the challenges are such that you can really not create today any diasporic alternative as a conceptual sense that you used to have in the past for Jewish life in the homeland. In the past, you used to have, like Russian socialist, the Brun. You used to have like the liberal American creed of the, of the reform movement. You used to have people uh, that I speak about uh, uh, who had a vision on autonomous Jewish life in other countries, uh, and, and these are kind of visions uh, that have been uh, shrinking, not developing themselves, and uh, uh, and the the sovereignty has been uh, the most the strongest one, even though, as I said, the sovereignty has to debate within itself the tribal the tribal proclivities that exist within the state of Israel. So these are the tribes we are talking about. I think I missed one tribe in my analysis. The
0: mainstream Zionists.
1: Yeah, the mainstream Israelis. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> We take yes. them for granted.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, uh, yeah, these are the, the, the vast majority of Israelis who are committed to uh, what we call uh, free society, open society. They're very traditional. And I write about this identity of traditionalism. In Israel, you don't have to be religious to be Jewish. You speak the language. You celebrate the holidays. Part of the the culture, the 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 calendar, the the annual calendar. You are you 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 serving the army. You have Jewish existence on a day-to-day life, including Jewish dilemmas, as we call about it. This is not what it's. It, it, this is not what happened to what we call secular Jew in the diaspora, because he or she will have to deal with intermarriages will have to deal with skipping identities. They don't have a Jewish language. Even even in terms of, as I write about, I have a whole thing about the pr- production of Jewish culture. You see, Jewish literature today is mainly Israeli literature. You don't have the old kind of like uh, Jewish literature of America of the Saul Bellows, mm-hmm. uh, of, of, of of the uh, uh, Bashevis Zenger, uh, you know. Philip Roth. Uh, you know, oh, Philip Roth that I write about. Uh, you have Israel is the is the is the reference point for the new writers.
0: So, touching on that, and final question, Professor Shane, but given these challenges and the internal tribalism, to say nothing of Israel's relationship with with the diaspora, what are the prospects that uh, the Israeli century just passed will translate into the Israeli century moving forward in the future? Can Israel actually uh, sort out... And mend these various rifts. And obviously too, in terms of uh of future challenges, um some would say that the the bigger biggest or gravest challenge isn't say Iran or Hezbollah, it's actually the West Bank and what to do with the millions of Palestinians um, you know, living living, if not under Israeli sovereignty, then than Israeli control.
1: Look, uh we certainly did not uh...
0: the sixth tribe, as it were.
1: We did not. We did not uh, deal with all our challenges yet. Our challenges on a daily, da- daily basis have not ended yet. We have lots of things to accomplish here. First of all, is our bickering inside. The the ruptures that we have among the the tribes is critical. Secondly, as you mentioned, we have not yet settled the issue of the Palestinians. Even though it kind of uh, the, the 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 intensity of the Palestinian conflict has been reduced significantly in comparison to the years before and also in the minds of many others because Palestinians right now uh, also have their own uh, self-control on areas uh, even though not independence and they are also ruptured between Gaza and Judean and Samaria uh, but we still have a lot of work to do to uh, to come to term with it and, and to reach certain agreements and, and, and so on um, but I remain quite optimistic about it. First of all you see as we see now in the war in Ukraine. Israel is still uh, a hub for the Jews, is attractive economically. We have reached this year $50,000 GDP per capita, one of the top uh, on the line of the OECD countries. Uh, The industries are working. The possibilities are growing for many, for the minorities, as well as for most Israelis. But one should not uh, uh, underestimate the challenges that we have ahead. I still believe that our main challenge, security wise, is Iran because Iran vowed to destroy us completely with nuclear weapons. We have to stop it. Uh, but we also have internal uh, challenges on all accounts, as you suggest, uh, in terms of uh, uh, modernity, in terms of the ultra orthodox, in terms of accommodating the Arab citizens of Israel that will become more uh, uh, part of the state, in terms of creating what we call. Um, uh, Uh, social integration or or even social conversion of those who are Jewish but not Jewish exactly. We have lots of issues like that in Israel uh, because we accommodated so many Mm -hmm. people who claim to be part of the law of return but don't have any Jewish roots. We have issues pertaining to center and periphery because of the growth of Israel and its success economically. We have to disseminate it much broader in society and bring many more people into it. We have lots of lots of, of challenges, but undoubtedly, Israelis see this as their home. Diaspora see Israel as the epicenter of Jewish life. Israel is a broad look into looking into Israel as, as, as a patriotic place, which they are committed to. Uh, something has happened here. Mostly, however, as I suggest, our internal division is what is worrying me more than anything else about our ability to keep the cohesion that needed to fight the uh, those who are not interested in keeping us alive as a state.
0: Well, with that Professor Shane, uh, I wanted to thank you for a really thought-provoking discussion. Uh, and the book itself, I still need to finish it, but uh, so far uh, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, and like you said, uh, if the internal divisions here in Israel are are the biggest and most challenging issue at hand, then the new government, the current government, uh, is off to a reasonable start, trying to at least mend those divisions and uh, get a functioning government uh, for the people here. Yes. So you being part of, you being part of that, uh, I'm obviously biased. We have, like I said, known each other for, for 20 years, but I think
1: that's also a good sign. Thank you so much for having me.
0: My pleasure. Okay, that was Knesset member and professor Yossi Shane. Many thanks to him for his generous time and insights, and for his kind words to a young college sophomore all those years ago. Also, thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thank you for listening.